1: They have nothing to do with art. I don't need to beg for some acclaim to desperately build my fame. I write and sing and act to be a part of a community of people who value integrity. I don't care about award shows. I don't need the shallow praise. I don't have the inkling of a yen. I'd rather sit in my den wearing blue. Reading ancient Grecian plays all oh, the world's a stage and all the men are only players. So why?
2: Would well a hunk of that may describe the, the attitude that many of you have towards award shows. Uh, I don't think it accurately describes the attitude that most people who are eligible for awards have award shows but let me just begin by saying if you're listening live here on February 22nd on Friday 23rd 23rd on Friday, uh, let me call your attention to several things which you would have no way of knowing. So we're doing a show about award shows. Behind the scenes on our show today, it's the deadline for the PMJAs. I don't know what that stands for, but it's the national awards thing that we're eligible for. This show, the Colin McEnroe show, is eligible for. We've won four times, two firsts and two seconds. We're also, this makes absolutely no sense, I concede, apparently up for a regional Emmy for best promotional campaign. I don't know what that is. Or something. It's something like that. And last year, we shared actually a pretty great award, the Edward R. Murrow National Award, with our new staff here, which is to say, maybe everybody is implicated in award shows. That's what I'm saying. It often doesn't bring out the best in people either. And there is really a discernible awards season. It's like an agrarian cycle of planting and plucking up what is planted. You get your nominations, and they sprout up into awards. Um, And, you know, that's the way it goes. Uh, It's uh, basically January through March, especially this year when the Emmys are folded into that time cycle. And then you get the Tonys and usually the Emmys as sort of warm weather outliers. At this point in 2024, the Emmys, the Golden Globes and the BAFTAs, which are the British Oscars, have already happened. If you're listening live on Friday, Saturday, tomorrow... The uh, Screen Actors Guild, the SAG Awards, will be, uh, for the first time, televised live on Netflix. And there's kind of a paradox. The ratings for these shows have been falling like wily e. Coyote strapped to an Acme jetpack. And there's even more opportunities to walk, watch award shows. Uh, today on the show, we're going to look at awards and award shows as a collective phenomenon. There's a radio award for best depiction of a collective phenomenon. I expect to be dieting down into my tuxedo to accept it next year. But let's get going with the guests here. Uh, we wouldn't dream of doing this without David Edelstein, America's greatest living film critic. Alison Herman, uh, we are about to meet TV critic at Variety and founding TV critic at The Ringer. And she writes a lot about these awards shows. Uh, So, Allison, let's get started here. The the vital signs for award shows aren't great if the vital signs are things like ratings and maybe even sometimes what people write about them. So, I don't know. What's the overall state of the art here, Allison?
0: Well, there's almost a paradoxical phenomenon happening where— all of live tv is sort of falling off a crater right um award shows are not necessarily unique but as all live tv ratings sink, that means award shows become more and more unusual and special in their occasional ability to pull audiences together for a rare three hours at a time but everyone is aware that there is trouble in paradise as it may be and so you have you can observe certain fin- related trends like the fact that you know at one point in time hosting the oscars was the most prestigious job and show business and now they can barely find anyone to do it um we witnessed joe coy the stand-up comedian was the host for the most recent golden globes he was hired 10 days in advance he was much more obscure than past hosts and perhaps predictably, his hosting stint did not go particularly well. You sort of see the rise of attempts to get more and more people, to eventize these things and get people to tune in. The Oscars are really big on trying to pull people together for reunions, for past movies, but then you see the things that really do end up Lasting like the so-called slap from a few years ago are things that the producers could not plan for and would not really want to plan for. So there's a little bit of a no one really knows what to do, but it can also be interesting to watch these shows experiment.
2: Right. When we say that Joe Coy, the host uh, of the Golden Globes, who was drafted into that job, I think with about two weeks to spare, uh, that he did not shine, uh, well, we'll give you a little uh, sense of that. Kat, this is A1.
1: Oppenheimer is based on a 721-page Pulitzer Prize-winning book about the Manhattan Project. And Barbie is on a plastic doll with big boobies. (laughs) I watched Barbie. I loved it. I really did love it. Um, I don't want you guys to think that I'm a creep, but it was kind of weird being attracted to a plastic doll. It's just something about your eyes, Ryan. The whole show, just close your eyes wide. Everyone just looks into your eyes. And and Margo, it's not always about you. (laughs) The key moment in Barbie is when she goes from perfect beauty to bad breath, cellulite, and flat feet. Uh, Or what casting directors call character actor. (laughs) Some I wrote, some other people wrote. Robert De Niro's here! Yo, I got the gig 10 days ago. You want a perfect monologue? Yo, shut up. You got, you're kidding me, right? Slow down. I wrote some of these, and they're the ones you're laughing at. Look.
2: So that's painful to hear even now. But it, it kind of, you know, David Edelstein, this is as good a way as any to get into the question of who or what are these award shows for? I mean, in terms of the host, you do want the host to be able to tease some of the famous people in the audience, some of the famous people who are winning or are up for awards. You do want that to happen in a way that maybe even makes everybody a little bit uncomfortable. But that even raises the question, are these ceremonies for the people sitting in the audience and winning awards, or are they for us? And is it possible for them to be both?
3: Well, it's possible for them to be both because we identify with the people who are nominated and the, and the people who win. That's the whole point. We, we, we pick our favorites or we, uh, or we have fantasies in which we're in their place and we go up. What would we say in this particular uh, – what would we say if we were hosting the, uh, the Academy Awards or the Golden Globes? I have to say I didn't see the Golden Globes, but I mean that wasn't as terrible – as a lot of award monologues I've ever heard, I've heard, you know, by people who, who got considerable acclaim. There were a couple of seeds there. His, uh, his delivery wasn't great. And I don't really care for people who laugh at their own jokes, you know, (laughs) like that. Um, but I, I, uh, it didn't seem terrible as far as it goes, but I don't know that there is, um, I know you've, you've talked about the plummeting audiences, but it seems to me from where I sit, everything is expanding. Uh, Oscar season's practically 365 days a year now with, uh, the various prognostications, uh, the, the, you know, websites that have long been around that are just, just devoted to awards predictions, um, it's uh, I mean, it's something it's very depressing to to have gone to, to go to a, a, a film festival, say, say Sundance, you know, and you see something and it changes your view of the world. And it's not going to be released for maybe a year widely, but it changes your view of the world. And the guy next to you says, gee, I think we have a new contender for best picture. And all of a sudden, your view of the world goes back to what it was, which is basically, you know, who's going to win?
2: Yeah, and, you know, Allison, but he raises an interesting point as well that, you know, you use the word eventized, and, and I think you meant it in that context just to kind of create on-screen events, uh, reunions of casts or, or whatever. But there's another way in which awards are eventized, which is on social media where— even if you don't necessarily like the awards, even if you're not down with the whole idea of it, you can hate tweet, you can, and and to David's point, this can go on for weeks and weeks and months and months. Uh, You know, if you want to, you can participate uh, parasocially in in these awards for, you know, pretty much the year round.
0: Yeah, I do totally agree with David's point that while Paradoxically or ironically, the ratings of these award shows are often in decline. The industrial complex surrounding these awards has never been bigger. You know, before (laughs) you're I live in
3: complex, I love that. I,
0: I live in Los Angeles. And that means that every time I walk outside my door, I see billboards upon billboards that are paid for by all these major studios so that the people who are voting for these awards just see them as they're driving to and from work. And I do think, you know, if you are going to participate in this award in any kind of awards discourse, you need to have the grain of salt that it's inherently ridiculous to compare these kinds of art to each other. But I guess I'll also offer the counterpoint in that the search for these awards has motivated a lot of new players, namely these streaming services that are often funded and financed like tech companies or in some cases are tech companies. To chase that trophy by bankrolling certain things that may not have gotten made. So notably this year, Killers of the Flower Moon cost $200 million to make. There's no one that's going to pay that kind of money except Apple. And Apple knows that it actually does have a possibility of getting awards because it did successfully. To your point, David, out of Sundance, they acquired Coda and won a, stash, a fancy statue. And while it is inherently a little ridiculous to stake so much time and money and ambition on this inherently arbitrary, silly process, sometimes it does compel people to finance and distribute and promote and give their backing to some pretty exceptional works of art. So I'll say that.
2: I do want to say, you know, you said that live television ratings are in decline. The exception for that, of course, is football. Maybe the solution is to have Travis Kelsey host uh, at least maybe all the award shows. This was never highlighted so much as it was at the Emmys when the actor Rob McElhenney, uh, who was there as a presenter, I think it was uh, for uh, also a reunion of Everything Sunny in Philadelphia, was watching the Eagles game on his phone in the audience of the Emmys while the Emmys were taking place and, and even let it be tweeted out on social media that he was doing that. So, uh, you know, even even the actors have, like, live things that they're more interested in, in in some instances. Although, Allison, you actually did think that this year's Emmys managed to kind of get past some of the inherent problems with award shows these days.
0: Yes, the this year's Emmys were the 75th anniversary, and because it was such a milestone year, the production really focused on Uh, appreciating and spotlighting the entire history of the medium and not just this year's nominees. So I mentioned reunions earlier, something the Oscars have tried to do. But often what they'll do is just kind of have two actors walk on stage and maybe play the theme song from the movie for a couple seconds. But what the Emmys did, which I really loved, is they recreated the sets of these classic shows like Martin and Cheers And they really immersed you in the reality of what these shows meant to the history of television. And I think the Emmys really have an uphill, you know, a steep hill to climb because the trend in recent years in the voting has been that the same handful of shows tend to win within each year. So like every drama award goes to succession, every comedy award went to Ted Lasso, now goes to the bear and they needed to find a way to honor a broader range of what television is and can be, and I thought they really did that through this year's ceremony, which I appreciated.
2: You know, David, just uh, she mentioned something that I, I'd wanted to bring up anyway, which is that both the Golden Globes and the Emmys separate drama from comedy, uh, and there are reasons to do this, including the just the fact that you can have, give out more awards and keep more people interested, and of course Jerry Lewis, for a long time, complained that there was no Oscar for comedy. He would have won so many Oscars. He He said if there was an Oscar for comedy. But I feel we're living at a moment where this is a very, very fuzzy distinction. I mean, I feel like almost everything I watch is a dramedy. Uh, And a lot of times the things things that are up in comedy. uh, I think a lot of
3: people people have questioned why the bear is uh, was in was in comedy since it's. uh, In some ways, more emotionally devastating than – not that comedy can't be emotionally devastating, but in some ways, it's more emotionally devastating than succession. And uh, in some ways, certainly if you've ever been behind a stove, the stakes are even higher. I mean, yeah. (laughs) I see what you did there.
2: The stakes are higher. Anyway, continue.
3: Go ahead. Sorry,
2: (laughs) I just said I see what you did there. The stakes are higher behind the stove. Thank you, thank yeah. you very much. Okay. Thank you.
3: Uh, I didn't do that, but I'll take credit for it. Um, I I think I was maybe 20 years ago. I wrote in in some publication that we need an Oscars an Oscar for comedy. Although we don't need any more Oscars, we don't need any more awards. But but I I do think it's a shame that uh, uh, you know Jeff Bridges is immortal because of the dude. But his Oscar went to some dude light you know, character who got redeemed in a movie, uh, the name of which I don't even remember. So <laughs> there's uh, there's always going to be crazy something. There's always going to be uh, uh, prejudice against that. There's always going to be, but, uh, but that's, you know, that's also one of the problems with awards because, uh, uh, you know, you, 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 the the aesthetics are still very conservative. I mean, Moonlight notwithstanding, I mean, there have been some movies that have been fairly uh, radical aesthetically. But, um, you know, uh, 40 years ago, this really crystallized for me. E.T. and Tootsie, two of the best pieces of popular entertainment ever to come out of Hollywood, went against each other. And the winner was Gandhi, <laughs> because because the Oscars are how these people want to present their industry to the world, and that is not necessarily in a in a farcical slapstick. Uh, uh, light. I mean, that's the children's table, in the words of Woody Allen, whose earlier, funnier pictures were better, as they say.
2: <laughs> yeah, so, I mean, Allison, to that point, and I want to have both of you talk about this, but, uh, I mean, this isn't exactly the same point, but when he talks about Tootsie and E.T., another aspect of this is box office, uh, and uh, both uh, of the both the Golden Globes and the Oscars have struggled with that question. Uh, how do you deal with a movie that maybe doesn't fit the, the, the characteristics that we assume associate with a Best Picture Oscar. It doesn't have that kind of Gandhi typology, but it's really, really popular and it's good. It's good in its own way. And so the Oscars had talked about trying this out. I think when Michael Schulman's on a little bit later, he'll explain that the original Oscars actually did that. Uh, But the Golden Globes did it this year too. I don't know, Alison, how successful you thought that new category was for cinematic and box office achievement.
0: Well, it's a little silly because, as many people have pointed out, the award for cinematic or box office achievement is the box office. It is that the studio (laughs) makes a lot of money from a successful movie. Very good. And, you know, I think what was interesting about the Oscars was at the same time that they were trying to maybe force a um, best blockbuster award, they also in one year tried to relegate all the craft categories. One of the things that I think distinguishes the Oscars is that they celebrate less uh, appreciated arts, like sound design and cinematography. And they shunted all of that to the pre-show. And then the movie that won all those awards was Dune, which was the most successful blockbuster that was nominated for a bunch of Oscars. So fortunately, this year, they kind of have had that issue solved for them in that the some of the most financially successful movies of the year, Barbie and Oppenheimer also happen to be of more than respectable quality. So they don't look ridiculous nominating them for awards but i do think to david's description earlier the oscars often represent how hollywood wants to position itself which sometimes can have a flavor of moral righteousness but i think recently you've seen they they like to reward success so last year's winner um everything everywhere all at once for best picture something i think was appreciated was not only the fact that it was a very unique story. The fact that it highlighted uh, Asian American immigrant experiences, but it also was financially successful. And I think you've seen that trend in recent Oscars, where that is something that is worth celebrating because it's very difficult to have original movies succeed on that level these days.
3: Yeah, David, I never really go thought ahead. of that. You know, that's a really that's a really good point. I never really thought about it in quite those terms. Has ever has a movie that absolutely bombed at the box office, just was a, a, a sort of legendary bomb, become best picture. I don't know that they could that they could even bring themselves to vote for something that didn't break through to some kind of audience, however small.
2: Yeah, we can ask Shulman that when, when he's on, but um, I can't think of anything. I, I think another problem that they had, David, and one of the reasons they expanded the Academy best picture category to, to a maximum of, of 10 films... I think a lot of it stemmed from the year of The Dark Knight. Uh, yeah, it's the and, Dark Knight Award. Yeah, the Dark Knight Award. And it's, it, there was, well, you know, this isn't like Oscar movies. This isn't like Kramer versus Kramer. You know, it isn't the kind of thing that we give best pictures to because uh, there's people in costumes doing silly looking things. But it's also obviously a beautiful Willowcrafted movie with, as you know, David, the Batman fan base, which can be pretty crazed in its, in its enthusiasm. So the Oscars, I think, at least said, you know, we've got to at least think about some of these kinds of movies once in a while.
3: Yeah, it's not, but it's not a contradiction. Yeah. Uh, it's not a contradiction. A, a great film is going to find an audience. And uh, I don't, and I agree. I don't, I, I think that uh, if it makes $200 million, that should be its own reward. Um, but that's not how, that's not how it works. There's mm. a, there's a, there's a psychological component here that will never that you know no amount of money will ever overcome. I was I was dipping into this book uh, by a sociology professor, uh, Francesco Duina. He wrote, um, "Hang on, I wrote it down here." Victory, especially when major, affords the possibility of a broader feeling of relaxation. The winner is entitled to a sense of overall peace, completeness, even stillness. He has acquired the most cherished possession of all the freedom to be well you know actors most artists but especially actors are always wrestling over who am i this time is there a me do i even exist and that's the thing about the oscars they uh you know it's going to be in the first line of your obituary you were an academy award winner uh, you can actually say to yourself i exist
2: <laughs> All right. So, by the way, our crack research department, uh, consisting of Jonathan McPants, uh, is noting that The Hurt Locker was a fairly low-grossing uh, best picture, as was Nomadland. Land, obviously, maybe box office a little bit depressed by the pandemic. Uh, and then there's a the little question. A little of, bit. You know, there it,
3: didn't, it didn't even open. Yeah. yeah. I mean, and,
2: the, and really, Coda basically didn't really open theatrically either. So, so there are some examples of that. So, Allison, let's go back to eventizing. So the Grammys— First of all, I think that the Grammys are very poised for, to eventize they've, they've got a lot of very talented people who are just gonna be there and they can do interesting things live on stage because they're used to doing that uh, and so you get moments and uh, the Grammy pe- Grammy people are smart enough to make sure these moments happen uh, before uh, Allison talks uh, let me just remind you of one of the things that happened quite recently Joni Mitchell performed both sides now uh, with Brandy Carlisle sister strings Blake Mills Lucius Allison Russell uh, Jacob Collier and, and Probably Ryan Gosling, too, who knows. Uh, but here it is, A2.
1: Rose and flows of angel hair, and ice cream castles in the air, and feather canyons everywhere. I've looked at clouds that way. But now
2: they only block the sun. Okay, I have to fade it before the other voices come in. But, uh, Allison, this was one of a number of things that the Grammys did to make this more than just a, a kind of a, a formality, an award ceremony that has to happen every year. But give us your critical take on that.
0: Oh, man, I teared up a little, honestly, just listening to that back. Um, Yeah, this year, I do think the Grammys, A, have a little bit of an unfair advantage and B, are like almost barely an award show. Like they give out the vast majority of the actual honors before the telecast we see. And they're very conscious of really just staging a concert um, that happens to include a few presenters and a few acceptance speeches. But this year, what I felt they did really well is sometimes the Grammys can feel overly nostalgic Sometimes it can feel like an almost random pairing of young up-and-coming star with established legacy act. And what felt so thoughtful and unusual about this year's ceremony is that they had respected veterans like Joni Mitchell, like Tracy Chapman, but the reason that they were there or the younger artists that they were paired with felt very intentional and specific so luke combs the country star had put fast car tracy chapman's hit back on the charts with this cover and the way they staged that performance you could really tell he was paying tribute to her. Like he had such palpable respect and affection. And it was all about saying, you know, I have had the success, but I owe it all to this person. And with Joni, you know, she's 80. She's had some difficulties with her voice recently. And it was, there was a spotlight on her, but then you had all these younger people surrounding her who just clearly felt so much reverence for her and were in harmony with her. And those were the two, standout moments from a show that also included performances from pop stars like Dua Lipa. Look, what, is and...
3: more political? what is more political right now than what you just described? I mean, we're living in a country where one, one political party going for the presidency is trying to remind us how divided we are, how we'll never come together. And the theme of award shows in the last few years, and I predict the Oscars will be one of them, is unity. Unity. You know, an 80-year-old, hey, can really command the center of attention on a stage. Uh, hey, that's political um well, it's, the, very, it's very very uh, political you know, this
2: he, year whether 80 year olds can command our attention um we're exactly gonna have, people
3: we're, reaching across the aisle people reaching <laughs> across the generations across races across genres across you know every that's going to be a major theme this year and that let's not kid ourselves that is this year is political
2: all right, we're going to take a little break here, but uh, Alison Herman, uh, TV critic at Variety and was the original founding uh, TV critic at The Ringer, uh, has done such a wonderful job and has set us up for the song we're going to play right now. I didn't want to play it at the top of the show, Allison, because I was worried that I might cry. It makes me do it every time. Here we go. Get
0: fast car. I want a get to anywhere. Maybe we make a deal. Maybe together we can get somewhere. Any place is better.
1: From zero, got nothing to lose. Maybe we'll make something. Be myself, I got nothing to prove.
3: You got a fast car,
1: I got a plan. Inside of here, been working at the key. Happens in a show you can make them laugh you can make them cry anything anything can go a show that is really a show
2: thank you sammy wow. Uh, still with us, David Edelstein, America's Greatest Living Film Critic. Joining us now, very, exci- uh, very exciting, Michael Shulman, uh, somebody whose work I've enjoyed so much over the years, staff writer at The New Yorker and the author of Oscar Wars, A History of Hollywood in Gold, Sweat, and Tears, which is out in paperback this week in an orderly fashion. Please rush to your nearest independent bookstore and acquire said paperback. Um, so, Michael, first of all, welcome to our conversation. And second of all, you've spoken about the fact that at The New Yorker, it's sort of not that cool to be interested in the Oscars, or at least it has been lately, sort of. You, you I believe, are the person who organizes the Oscar pool uh, at <laughs> The New Yorker for a crowd of somewhat <laughs> less interested writers who would rather be thinking about something else. Uh, and then upstairs are the people uh, from Vanity Fair who take this in a whole different direction.
4: That is true. Oh, hello. hello. All, uh, great to be here. Nice to talk to you both. And uh, it's totally true. Like uh, you know, we're we're a few floors away from Vanity Fair, which is a sort of around-the-clock Oscar obsession uh, operation. Um, but I realized at a certain point that um, I was kind of the the one Oscar, like the lone real Oscar enthusiast at my magazine. And uh, it's true. Back like a couple years ago, I I, I was in charge of the on um, the Oscar pool, and then I would start to cover. Um, the show for the the website and then at a certain point starting in 2017, uh, I asked them like, do you want me to try to go to the Oscars? Like we're not, se- we haven't sent anyone for a long time. And so I've been going and covering the actual ceremony in the night for the magazine, of uh, since then.
2: So one of the first uh, things you say in your book is that the Oscars are kind of famous for getting it wrong. I'm going to have both you and David talk about this. David's already talked a little bit about it in the previous section. But but Michael, when you say that, you're referring, I think in particular, quite frequently to Best Picture awards that go to something that didn't really seem as though it should have gotten it, particularly uh, invidiously compared to something that didn't get it. Yeah, I mean there are a lot of really glaring
4: examples of that. Obviously, um, Citizen Kane losing <laughs> in nineteen forty two, which is in the book, and you know the infamous crash win against Brooke Mountain. But I would say it's in a lot of the different categories. I mean, there's a there's a wonderful quote um, from Betty Davis, who uh, was shockingly not nominated in the first ever like big snub for of human bondage in. 1935 and um, and they actually had to have a write-in campaign the academy opened the, the nominations up to write-ins because there was so much outrage that Betty Davis was snubbed and she still didn't win Claudette Colbert won for uh, uh, It Happened One Night and then the next year Betty Davis won best actress for this movie Dangerous which she even thought was terrible and I, I kind of like it but um, Betty Davis writes in her memoir that Katharine Hepburn should should have won and then next you know next year she'll you know Katharine Hepburn will get it when someone else really should get it and then she has this line like it, and the original lie ble- breeds like a bunny so I, I think that often happens where you have the you know the right person Winning for the wrong movie, or the wrong pe- person winning for the right movie, or so you know, it, it's it's uh, it's like this this um, you know, it, it's it's like this these decades and decades long try to trying to put the the pieces back in place. You know, you see that this year for like Annette Bening being nominated for Nyad. is that her best movie? No, but there's a sense that she should have gotten it already.
2: So yeah, David, I I know that you have a tortured relationship with the Academy Awards, uh, and for some of us, I think getting mad about stuff like that is kind of part of the fun, if that's the right word. But but fun, yeah. Well, it can be. It can be very profitable. First of all, I just want to say I
3: really enjoyed the book. Um, Oh, thank you so much. And I I love that, you know, artistic merit was not discussed all that much, you know, in in the context of the Oscars, but you were writing about the zeitgeist. Uh, You were writing about the politics of the moment. I've won many uh, an Oscar betting pool myself because because. I never go with my favorite films or the films I think are most deserving. Whenever I see someone who does that, I think, oh, you sucker, you know, I'm going to make so much money off you because uh, I only think about the horse race, which is de- which depresses me like you wouldn't believe, although I've, I've profited from that depression. How do I know? So how do I know? Uh, is it that I'm there? Do I talk to people? Not really. I read certain columnists who'd, who'd been spun by certain publicists who'd been hired by certain studios who'd squired certain nominees around Hollywood to screenings and cocktail parties to influence the votes of, of a few thousand people used to be, they were mostly over 55 and white and well off and, Slightly to the left politically. Now now that's changed. But the principle, the campaigning is is still exactly the same. And that's why that's why I don't respect the Oscars. But it's why I uh un, unlike my my younger, snotty self, I'm more than happy. I, I wouldn't Colin, you wouldn't have asked me to be on the show right now. I wouldn't be talking to Michael Shulman <laughs> right now if it weren't for the I can I can piss on the Oscars for a long time, but hey, people are listening to me now. They're curious about what What I have to say, because of the Oscars.
2: And for many, many other reasons uh, as well. But yeah, I want to say also, Michael, this is a really great book. And what I like about it is it's not that there's juicy anecdotes that go on for three pages. There's like three juicy anecdotes on a page, you know, just about all, all these <laughs> complex situations about Fontaine and de Havilland. And they're sitting at the same table and somebody's blowing a kiss to somebody else that they're having an affair with. And it's just, uh, you know, if you if you like, like that kind of thing, which I do. Uh, yeah, babe. Maybe <laughs> it's absolutely That's what
3: the terrific. Oscars are all
4: about, but, you know, Subtext.
2: <laughs> the thing that you said before about Betty Davis, it's sort of almost one of the things the Oscars almost have seemed to do over the decades is kind of seek that kind of e- equilibrium or or if they get it wrong one time, get it right the next time. Or I think you do one. I'm going to mess this up now because I, I don't have it in the notes. But um, is it Gloria Swanson who's going against Betty Davis and Judy Holiday wins the both? Yes. Swanson and Davis have these iconic roles that people will be talking about for 100 years but you can't give it to one of them because then you won't be giving it to the other one.
4: Well, and also don't forget, um, Anne Baxter was also in that category for All About Eve, competing against Betty Davis in All About Eve. And, um, you know, Betty Davis was not happy about that because she uh, probably rightly assumed that they split the vote. Um, but why didn't they split the vote for Gloria Swanson in Sunset Boulevard? Um, I think it's so interesting to go back to those old... Uh, races and try to dissect what happened and why. Uh, but I do want to say a word of of support for Judy Holiday, who's amazing and born yesterday. And I, I kind of like that a uh, comedic performance won that year because that happens so rarely. Um, the Oscars are, are really bad at recognizing comedy. So I'm sort of at peace with that decision. I don't think it's one of the Oscars getting it wrong things. It's just fascinating to me that all of those incredible female performances happened and competed against each other the same year.
3: Um, but you're totally you know, I- right because it split the vote. Have you ever, you, you've, you have you ever been uh, in a, uh, you're, you you don't do criticism, but have you ever been in a group that voted? Like that had yeah. to negotiate that did ballots and all that sort of oh, thing. Oh, nothing like that. No, no. Because it's fascinating. Um, you know, it's fascinating how you, you are often voting against somebody. You know you 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 I, I was telling Colin this earlier, you know, maybe I want uh uh, film x to win or actor x to win but uh it looks like uh extra it looks like y is winning so i'm going to go go vote for z because it will take votes away from y and it'll all cancel each other out and in the end it really it it does turn into politics it 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 is not really a reflection and consensus politics which is you know uh, i said it was like family feud you know what's the lowest common denominator what did the most people vote for I mean, Judy Holiday was fantastic, but Gloria Swanson and Betty Davis, those are the two, I hate the overuse of the word icon, but those are genuinely iconic performances. You could argue that that, that uh, Judy Holidays was too. You're right, that was an extraordinary year. But can you imagine the fact that, that you know, that neither of those actresses in those amazing parts and those amazing films uh, at their stage in life Won, won the Academy Award, but, but got them for much lesser works?
2: Yeah. So we're going to take a quick break here. Michael Schulman's going to say so. is David Edelstein, we've got one more segment here. I want to talk a little bit about what actually goes on at the ceremony. And there's some other things to talk about. If we have time, I'd like to talk about EGOTs. I, I'm now, I don't respect anybody if they don't have an EGOT. I mean, uh, an Oscar means nothing to me at this point. All right, we'll take a break and we'll come back.
4: Used to work a lot for Walt Disney, starring in cartoons every night and day.
3: But
1: she said goodbye to Grumpy and Sleepy, left the dwarves behind, came to town to stay. lights keep on burning, cameras keep on
2: We are back. Before I uh, do the credits here, I, I have to tell you that this I should have set it up. The song we went out of the break with was the, the 1989 Oscar opening with Rob L- <laughs> Rob Lowe singing and dancing with Snow White. Uh, and even though I rewatched it earlier this morning, when he started to sing, then I had water in my mouth and I did a spit take. Uh, he's just so incredibly bad, and I, and I like Rob Lowe a lot, I'm not enough to watch the Fox game show he's hosting. But uh, Michael Schulman is with us. Uh, staff writer. one of my favorite
3: chapters in the book, by the way. Yes, absolutely. The chapter <laughs> in the book on that is oh, so let hilarious.
2: Me, let me do credits. There's a lot of people around here uh, right now. Uh, but Cat uh, Pastor's our technical producer, Gina Matruda is running around here. I think probably solving problems. Jonathan. McP- Pants is the producer today, uh, and uh, Lily Tyson is our senior producer. She's around as well, because this is our second day in our brand new glitzy studios, and we we want to make sure we know what we're doing, uh, which we probably don't. So with us, David Edelstein, America's Greatest Living Film Critic, and Michael Shulman, a staff writer at The New Yorker, Oscar of uh, author of Oscar Wars, A History of Hollywood in Gold, Sweat, and Tears, which is out in paperback this week. So, Michael, there's sort of two parts to this job. You have to Uh, pick an award winner for each category. But you have to put on a show, too, that a lot of people are going to watch. It used to be the case that people all over the world were watching it in just like these insanely large numbers. I think that's not quite as true as it used to be. But the whole job of putting on a show, a show that's watchable, the show that doesn't drown in long, droning thank-you speeches, is also very challenging. Finding the right host is challenging. Since David and I both like that chapter, maybe you could just talk about that 1989 show, which essentially ushered in the modern era of of Oscar hosting because it had to be something other than that, that being
4: so bad. <laughs> yeah, no, it was kind of what not to do. So um, in 1989, um, the Oscars opened with an 11-minute production number that, as you mentioned, featured Snow White, a woman dressed as Snow White, singing <laughs> um, Proud Mary with uh, Rob Lowe in a replica of the coconut grove with dancing cocktail tables. It was like a gay fever dream. It was so insane. <laughs> and uh, the reaction to it was horror. It was absolute horror. Disney actually threatened to sue the Academy for uh, sort of dragging their version of Snow White down into <laughs> this fiasco. And um, what was interesting about looking back on that, because it's, it, you know, every year or two, there's some article like worst Oscars ever. 1989, Rob Lowe, is that it's actually the story of this man, Alan Carr, who uh, was a producer. I guess he's best known for producing Grease, but really what he was known for around Hollywood was throwing these lavish house parties and being very flamboyantly gay in a kind of homophobic era and uh, having an array of designer caftans that he would wear. So he was just this over-the-top figure, and he dreamed his whole life of producing the Oscars he was sort of enamored of old Hollywood. And when he finally got the chance, um, he spent the weeks leading up to the awards just putting his name everywhere. Every, you know, it would be this drip, drip, drip of like Alan Carr says the Oscars are gonna be bigger and better and glitzier this year. Alan Carr says they got, you know, so and so to present. And so everybody knew that it was Alan Carr's Oscars. And then when it was such a disaster, it ruined his career and really his life, he was completely ostracized. But getting to your point from before, the next year, basically the Academy had to immediately hold a kind of what the hell happened committee to sort of diagnose the problem. And the next year, 1980, sorry, 1990, um, was the first year of Billy Crystal hosting. It was much more about clips of movies than big production numbers, which seemed very old fashioned, kind of from the era of uh, variety television. And it was a much more modern uh, ceremony that kind of, as you said, kicked off the more modern Oscars.
2: Yeah, and I think Billy Crystal had that ability to, you know, we talked earlier about the fact this has to be a party for all the famous people, but a party for us watching at home too. And Billy Crystal had the ability to make it both. Uh, And you sort of felt like you were at a party with Jack Nicholson that you were both enjoying in in different ways. Um, He kind of had that gift. But David, I think one of the other you know, odd paradoxes about the Oscars specifically, as opposed to the Grammys or certainly the Tonys, is that these awards are for people who kind of got famous in an industry where doing 38 takes of one scene or even one line is, you know, kind of standard operating procedure, and this is live. And and so you just do get a lot of people who maybe aren't that comfortable in that format, either doing weird things or, you know, showing up a little bit tipsy or I mean, you're asking people to do the one thing that if they're mainly movie stars and don't do theater, they're not that good at.
3: Well, that's why I completely I disagree respectfully with your uh, comment about droning speeches. You know, I I. Back uh, when uh, a guy named Gil Cates was producing the awards and he had uh, really draconian rules about how long you were able to speak to speak for uh, an acceptance speech. I guess they're back now. Um, It it was always really irritating to me when the orchestra would come in and cut these people out um, and then, you know, there would be. Uh, uh, you know, eleven-minute segments. Uh, you know, Snow White and Rob Lowe, or this painful scripted banter, which uh, varies over the years. And I want to see exhibitionists who are not used to being on live TV and normally have fifteen handlers between between us and them. I want to see them uh, emote and cry and thank people and. Uh, you know, uh, express narcissistic injury and uh, do all the sort of things that, uh, you know, and make fools of themselves on TV and then go out the next day and try to redeem themselves. I mean, that's (laughs) the liveness of it is really, really important to me. And I I do think that, you know, when you cut, when you cruelly cut, you know, those speeches short. Now, on the other hand, uh, you know, I remember the New York Film Critics Circle gave an award to... um, uh to an actor I won't I won't name him but uh he went on for fifteen minutes in his in his thank you and everybody was i, I I've I mean collectively we were all just practically clinking our silverware we wanted <laughs> him to stop
4: yes I can
3: tell you that, that yeah that William Hurt lost best actor one year in our voting meeting because somebody said it was a tie score. We had to vote again. And somebody said, do you want to hear William Hurt make a speech?
2: <laughs> I should say that David uh, one year uh, was sort of shared uh, and therefore hosted the uh, New York uh, and I got to watch uh, the New York uh, uh, critics awards. I, I got to sit at the table and watch him do it. You did a really good job too. Um, so, So yeah, I mean, I guess we, we have to say also that one of, I mean, Sometimes something wonderful happens because somebody's really on his game. And, and Michael, you write about uh, the famous uh, streaker incident when David Niven is up there about to present something. I think he's about to give a special award to somebody. This naked man on live television runs through the camera frame, and Niven is unbelievable. He, you know, he has a little moment, he recovers, and he goes, isn't it interesting that the biggest laugh that that gentleman will ever get came from stripping off his clothing and revealing his shortcomings? Uh, I mean, like... On the spot, he comes up with that. Uh, but God it,
4: bless him—a a dry British wit. Yes. Gotta
2: love it. But I mean, the one that everybody's still talking about, and we'll talk about for the rest of human history, uh, is the one that happened uh, just a couple of years ago. Uh, we'll just remind you: it's C1 cat.
1: Jada, I love you. GI Jane, too. Can't wait to see it. All right. <laughs> That was a nice one, okay. I'm out here, Uh uh-oh, Richard. (laughs) Oh wow, wow. Will Smith just smacked the out of me. Keep my wife's name out your mouth. Wow, dude. Yes. It was a GI Jane jump. Keep my wife's name out your mouth. No! I'm going to, okay? <laughs> so I could, oh, okay. That was a uh,
2: greatest night in the history of television. So unfortunately, we only have about two or three minutes left here, but I remember watching this with my son, and I had to beg him to watch the Oscars, and then we both watched this and went, oh, well, we can't, I can't even say what we said. But Michael, there's this, it's sort of, a David Niven moment. And Rock probably does this about as good a job as anybody could do with re- recovering from something that big. But I don't know. This is something that's probably not going to go away for a long time.
4: Oh, gosh. I, just hearing that audio again reminds me of being there. I was in the balcony and I knew it was something unplanned when I heard the anger in Will Smith's voice as he was yelling that. And also, of course, the four-letter words that he used, which I thought to myself, huh, I can't really see what's happening from up here, but I know you can't say that on ABC. So what is this? This, Something just happened. And I'm nearsighted, so I couldn't actually see that there was a slap involved. But it was really a chilling moment. It was like being in a bar where a a brawl breaks out. Like there's everyone just kind of froze up. And what was so amazing about it was that after that kind of stunned reaction, the entire auditorium kind of realized that, Will Smith was about to probably win best actor and come back and give a speech which he did and that was this kind of like cathartic but weird moment I was in the um, the, the the orchestra level lobby watching on a monitor uh, and like Beyonce was there and Rami Malek it was just everyone was wrapped in attention um, I was honestly so uh, in the end uh, the slap kind of saved me because I had just turned in my book a month earlier but I didn't like the ending I had to sort of hastily written conclusion and then i went to the ceremony saw this lap and ended my night at the vanity fair party where i saw on the dance floor will smith dancing with his oscar a huge smile on his face and the dj turns on getting jiggy with it which was of course (laughs) his song and he starts singing rapping along to his younger self like dancing and looking like he's having the time of his life and i just looked at him and thought this is the most like darkest most surreal (laughs) most absurd insane image and thank God I have an ending for my book.
2: Yeah, no, that's like an F. Scott Fitzgerald moment or something. It's just so perfect. All right, we have to go. But thanks to these wonderful guests, David Edelstein, Michael Shulman, run out in by Michael's book about the Oscars, Oscar Wars. And thanks for listening today. We will be back next week. About this
1: and talking about that. And talk about everything as a matter of fact. Oh, yeah. Talk about Torrington, Vernon, Danbury, Waterbury. All the berry, woodberry, hitting on new
3: Britain, Vernon, I already said that one. Avon, Farmington, yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. All the